Welcome to Plenary Session. You know, recently I got quite interested in the vaccine for kids between 5 and 11, and I tossed out a question, which is what is the best evidence to support the fact that this vaccine for a healthy kid between the ages of 5 and 11 reduces the risk of severe disease, hospitalization, and death? That was my question. And people have submitted some papers try to prove to me that that's the case. Now, of course, they didn't submit randomized control trials powered for that endpoint because they don't exist. They submitted a test-negative case control design. And that's what I'm going to talk about in this episode. This is from my YouTube channel, which, by the way, you should be listening to. And I've pulled it out and put it over here. And actually, it is about the critical appraisal of literature. So I know some of you may be saying, why is this on the plenary session feed? It's about literature appraisal. A few thoughts. I know people have told me, that they're sick of listening to COVID-19 policy. Look, I'm with you people, I'm sick of it too. When you visit many states in this country, COVID is in the rearview mirror, just a few places that still have it, still have it on the dashboard. But in most places, the rearview mirror, I get it. But why do I cover it? One, I think we have a duty as academics to talk about the policy issues in health and medicine that will have the broadest impact. And if your business is the critical appraisal of literature, which is my business, I have a moral duty to talk about it because these are issues that are going to affect more life years. End of story. School closure will affect more life years than whatever cancer you focus on. You focus on some leukemia, that's great. But school closure affects maybe 100,000 times more life years than what you will ever do in your entire career, even if you change the paradigm for that tumor. You have to have some perspective. So if you're going to be there in this business of biomedicine and critical appraisal, you've got to go where the biggest impact will be. And if you don't, for whatever reason, but mostly I think because people want to protect their career, I think that's it's acceptable if you're a trainee, but not acceptable if you're a tenured professor. So that's why I think it's important to go there. The next point, sometimes people say, you're good at critical appraisal of oncology articles, but you're not good at critical appraisal of COVID articles. Well, I hate to tell you something. I'm not sure I'm good at it or bad at it, but whatever it is, it's the same. It's the same caliber being brought to both tasks. If you really think that he's good at one but not the other, it is you who need to do some deep thinking because it's the same. It's the same principles I apply to both. And in here, this, this excerpt, I think you will get a sense of that because what we're going to talk about is a test negative case control design. And it is really a classic, a classic scenario in biomedicine where we take people who present to the hospital with condition X and we take the controls, people who present to the hospital with a different condition, and we ask what was the probability that they had antecedent receipt of some exposure. Classic case control. And there's this goes back to cancer. Of course, there's a seminal paper in the New England Journal, pancreas cancer, coffee. We'll, you'll hear about it. You'll learn about it. You'll see the connection. But this is a principle of evidence-based medicine that is a long-standing principle. I didn't make it up for COVID. It's always been there. And of course, anyone who remembers it would know that this paper is trash. It's low credibility. A lot of things have low credibility. The other thing about COVID and cancer is that the pretest probability human interventions will benefit people is low. That's always the case in biomedicine. That's true in our work on reversals, true in our work on cancers, true in the work on COVID. So of course, I approach a lot of COVID questions with this pretest probability, this prior. It's important to understand that prior. That's the truth prior of the world. You know, that's the reality of life. You may not like it, but if you don't like it, you either can work to change it or you can delude yourself into thinking it's not true. Only one of those things is a useful thing to do. So I think those are the two big objections. Why are you talking about COVID? The answer is, of course, that you know you have to think about the number of human years of life that are going to be impacted by some of these things. 
um, in this case, you know, whether or not kids get this extra booster has huge ramifications, not just for the current vaccine effort, but also for vaccination broadly and in general. How, how much will it impact them for years to come? It's going to have tremendous impact. I think right now people have dropped a nuclear bomb in the field of vaccine confidence and hesitancy because there are people saying things so ludicrous that even I, somebody in the canon of Western medicine who is a supporter of most childhood immunizations, thinks they're crazy, that they're crazy to think to they, that they ought to be mandating boosters in 22-year-olds. Okay, they've got me to the point of thinking they're crazy, which is going to really undermine their trust in people who may have already thought poorly of them to begin with. I thought the world of them until they pushed it too far. So that's I think that's why we talk about it. And the second point, of course, is that this is the same methods of appraisal. It's the same rigor. If, if somebody actually thinks the rigor is different, that person is just fundamentally has a core bias because I, I, I truly uh, approach all questions with a very neutral vantage, um, asking what is this, the scientific truth. And it's the exact same principles. These are principles that have been applied in cancer trials and cardiology trials and these trials. Um, so those are my thoughts there. And the last thought, the myeloma episode. Some people listen to the last episode and uh, I got a lot of emails saying like, oh boy, that was a scorcher, but it was dead on. And it, and it is dead on. We all know, you know, we all know what's going on. They have failed. You know, it's so many people in multiple myeloma who want to be hailed as the expert and they all want to run their garbage industry-sponsored trials and put their name as first or last author on these, you know, doublet versus triplet studies. So they each have one under their belt so they can go to conferences and talk about how great they all are. But the truth is that who has failed or who is suffering? The patient. We just don't have credible data for so many key questions as I talked about with Mani in the last episode. So I stand by that. I think it's really important. Um, you know, somebody listened and and then they they said that they they didn't want to they didn't want to commit to listening to the whole thing because it sounded too harsh. Somebody told me that, and I said, um, if you really if you want to live in this, I mean, if you want to consider yourself a, a moron, that's a great point of view. But if you want to be an intellectual, you have to expose yourself to things you don't think you will initially like. I listen to a lot of shows, a lot of podcasts, and I read a lot of things that I'm pretty confident when I see the title or the author. I ain't gonna like, but it's important to confront that because occasionally I'm persuaded, often I refine my argument, and at a minimum, I know what the hell they're talking about so I can actually comment on it intelligently. You know, that's the, that's, that's, that's the basic rule of participating in any intellectual exercise. So with this, let's turn to the video, the case control, test negative case control design, COVID-19, and we'll talk about the EUA, and then we'll talk about this study, New England Journal paper, and why it really doesn't prove what people think it does. Until next time. It's being reported that as early as tomorrow, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration is going to authorize the third dose, the booster dose for kids 5 to 11. It's a bold regulatory move under the auspices of EUA, and it's going to be that third dose. And this led me to start to think, which is, you know, what is going to be the further reduction in severe disease or hospitalization from that third dose for kids in this age group? Because we know that kids in this age group already have very, very good odds against SARS-CoV-2. Their odds are really good. I think on my Substack many months ago, I reviewed a paper from Germany about how well kids did against COVID-19 in the absence of vaccination. And the answer was the rates of severe disease, hospitalization, MISC were very, very low. It's likely fallen a little bit further with Omicron. And I started to think about the third dose. And in my mind, I think it is difficult to understand how the US FDA justifies the use of EUA, the emergency use authorization, and not BLA, biological licensing agreement, for the third dose. Because 
It's hard to justify and say that there's an emergency for kids 5 to 11 who've already had two doses, so much so that we need to lower the regulatory standard for that third shot. I think that's an uphill battle as a regulatory expert, but we will see. We will see what the, uh, what the advisory committees think about this. But as I started to think about this topic, I started to go down the rabbit hole, which is how do we really know that the first two doses of the vaccine in 5 to 11-year-olds reduces the risk of severe disease or hospitalization. So I put out a call on Twitter, send me your best paper, send me the paper that you think proves this, and let's take a look. Candidate number one, that's what I'm gonna talk about in this video, candidate number one, it's BNT162B2, Protection Against the Omicron Variant in Children and Adolescents. It's a New England Journal of Medicine paper. And I think it's important to talk about this paper because it illustrates sort of one of the paradoxes in this space. Now, of course, if you wanted to do the gold standard study, it would be very simple. You randomize a quarter million kids to vaccine or no vaccine. By the way, once upon a time, we actually did studies of this size for the Salk polio vaccine. You randomize that many kids, vaccine or no vaccine. You follow them out and see, do I reduce severe disease or hospitalization? Easy peasy. And that's what you would do in a perfect world. Well, there are lots of reasons why people don't want to do that. One of those reasons is that they want to expedite the products to market. Uh, I'm not necessarily sold that not doing these studies expedites the products to market because the appetite to enroll in these studies is tremendous and it would enroll very, very quickly. Another reason they may not want to do it is they think they might not win and the other reason they may not want to do it is it's expensive. So those are reasons I think are probably more uh, prescient, more likely to weigh on their mind. Let's talk about this paper. This is a test negative case control study. That means what they're going to do is we're going to take a bunch of kids who are hospitalized with COVID-19. We think they're hospitalized with COVID-19 because they have the signs and symptoms of COVID-19 and often they have a PCR test positive for COVID-19. We're going to take a bunch of kids hospitalized without COVID-19. They're hospitalized, but it ain't for COVID-19. They're testing negative for COVID-19. And then we're going to ask, what were the odds of antecedent vaccine exposure in the group that was hospitalized with COVID-19? And what was the odds of antecedent vaccine exposure in the group hospitalized without COVID-19? Now, one notable finding in this paper is that there are some kids who are hospitalized with COVID-19 that were in fact vaccinated. So as well as this vaccine works, can't possibly be a parachute because, you know, it's not a foolproof thing. It's not 99.9999. There's some, there's some breakthrough rate. That's to be expected, sure. But what about the rates of vaccination in the group of kids who are hospitalized for a different reason than COVID-19? And they're actually a lot higher. And that creates the odds ratio of the paper. That creates the finding that the odds of being vaccinated are higher if you're hospitalized for a different reason than COVID-19 than the odds of being vaccinated if you're hospitalized with COVID-19. But the moment I first read this paper, my first thought was that I can think of a potential bias here, which is that kids who are hospitalized without COVID-19, they're hospitalized for another reason, includes a group of kids who, unfortunately, suffer from chronic medical conditions, are chronically ill. Not only that, their doctors may expect them to be hospitalized in the future. Unfortunately, these children may suffer from conditions that relapse and remit, that come and go, that lead to subsequent hospitalizations. They may be sicker, more vulnerable, and they may also be more likely to be hospitalized. Now, in that group of kids, you got to think that the doctors, the moment the vaccine becomes available, that's the first group they're gonna target. These are kids with comorbidities. These are kids who are vulnerable. You're gonna wanna vaccinate that group. And so they're going to have a higher vaccination rate. You know, Even if the vaccine is not the thing responsible for reduced hospitalizations, they're going to have a higher vaccination rate because they're the ones in whom vaccination is applied most readily. 
And that to me is a problem with this study. And if it doesn't make sense, let me give you another example. Many years ago, there was a study of people in the hospital with pancreas cancer and people in the hospital without pancreas cancer. And they said, well, if you're in the hospital with pancreas cancer, how much coffee did you drink before? And if you're hospital without pancreas cancer, how much coffee did you drink before? And it turns out if you're hospitalized without pancreas cancer, you drink less coffee than if you're hospitalized with pancreas cancer. Lo and behold, coffee causes pancreas cancer. That was the message. But the problem with that study was the type of person was hospitalized without pancreas cancer might be somebody who's chronically ill. They have other medical problems. And those other medical problems are the kinds of thing that prevent them from drinking caffeine. They're not sort of a healthy person who seeks coffee in the same way. And if you use a control of people not hospitalized for a different reason, but of average healthy people, this effect vanishes and actually coffee is no longer linked to pancreas cancer. What's my point? My point is that this test negative case control design because the control are people hospitalized for another reason and in whom there is got to be a lot of kids that you suspected they might be hospitalized down the road. You're not just testing the effect of vaccination. You're also testing the desire among physicians to vaccinate the type of kid who's going to be repeatedly hospitalized. And you can't separate those two. So I don't know that they have a higher vaccine rate and that's the thing that's protecting them from getting COVID-19, which is what they want you to believe. Or they have a higher vaccination rate because the doctors were so worried that they're going to be back here in the hospital again or be hospitalized again in the future that they're the ones I'd want to vaccinate first because the doctor believes that vaccination is going to lower severe disease or hospitalization. And I cannot tease those two things apart. So this study, although it's in the New England Journal of Medicine, it is not persuasive on the question. I think this is what people forget about reading and interpreting medical evidence. This study does not persuade you more because it has this structural problem. I don't see a way around this problem. And in fact, I think if people keep sending me articles to read, I'll read the other articles. But I really think it's going to be very difficult for somebody to show me a credible post-market observational study that vaccination in this age group lowers severe disease or hospitalizations for a few reasons. One, as in this case control design, the kids who are hospitalized for a different reason are probably disproportionately vaccinated. And in the other type of design, the types of kids in whom the parents seek vaccination rapidly are the kids who are most shielded from COVID-19 because the parents are otherwise concerned and they also are likely to be higher socioeconomic status and more likely to be uh, of certain races, white and Asian, because that's what all the data has shown to date. And those other socioeconomic factors may be protecting them from bad outcomes and not the vaccination itself. And I think so it'll be very difficult to untangle the confounding and in this particular case to, to worry about, I mean, to think about this sort of case control flaw. And so I'm, I'm very skeptical that they'll be able to marshal such evidence. What was the right answer? The right answer was simple. The right answer was staring you in the face, which is just like the Salk polio vaccine to run that mega randomized control trial of hundreds of thousands of people. That was always the right answer. It's not a secret answer. It's an obvious answer. And that might have been what we would have had if we didn't have the resignation of Gruber and Krauss. It might have been what we would have had if we had a culture of medicine committed to evidence-based medicine, which I think we don't, we don't have anymore. That culture is dying. It's on the ropes. Because all of the things that threaten evidence-based medicine are real social forces, like the desire to sell product and to, to push your product. So I cannot conclude from this paper that vaccination does not prevent severe disease or hospitalization, that would be an incorrect conclusion. But I don't think this paper is persuasive in and of itself that vaccination does. And I continue to encourage people to submit different papers so I can take a critical look at it. The core problem of this paper is that the cases are people hospitalized with COVID-19, which has some vaccination rate, sure. 
and many of the and those are the kids' hospitals COVID nineteen. The controls are patients' hospitals for a different reason, and they have a much higher rate of vaccination. But I don't know if that higher rate of vaccination prevented them from being hospitalized with COVID-19 or if they were being vaccinated at a higher rate because doctors knew and felt that they were very likely to be hospitalized for a different reason. And that's the kind of kid you'd want to target right away for a vaccination campaign. That's the kid you're most worried about. So, And that's the structural problem of this paper. So this is sort of a, a technical look at case control papers, which is something that I don't often talk about because case control papers as a general genre are not that persuasive of biomedical causal claims. I think they are persuasive more of risk factor epidemiology, but for the efficacy of drug products, I think we typically don't use case control studies. We typically don't need to. The mere fact we're doing tells you that the outcome we're worried about severe disease or hospitalization is a rare event. That's part of why we're doing a case control study design, and it is in fact a rare event. It is a quite rare event, and that's why we're doing this. But that also tells you that the absolute risk reduction of the product at best has got to be quite modest. So why do I say all this? As we are on the cusp of the third dose, we have to ask ourselves, what is the evidence for the first two? And is it robust? And if you really have a healthy six-year-old child in front of you, let's take the most extreme example. They've had and recovered from Omicron. What evidence does somebody have to say that by vaccinating them with two doses or even three doses, they further reduce the risk of hospitalization or death? I think the answer to that question as of right now is I'm not aware of any such study that would even comment on such a case. Now let's say they're six years old and they haven't had prior infection. What is the strongest evidence that two doses reduce the severe disease or hospitalization or death? And I think it's, it's likely to be this paper and paper similar, and I think they suffer from the structural bias. So this is the Overcoming COVID-19 Investigators paper. The solution, of course, is mega randomized control trials. They're not infeasible or impractical. That Pfizer has 100 billion reasons they could have run it. Those are my thoughts on this issue. I think it is going to be a, a truly important uh, regulatory policy question if we give a third dose into the kids in this age group, the absolute, you know, not the absolute, the near absolute lowest risk, because the absolute is actually a few years younger, the near absolute lowest risk age group under the auspices of emergency use authorization without clinical trial data measuring clinical benefit, only measuring antibody titers. And I think this is going to be a very important and longstanding regulatory question. I'm happy to weigh in on it in the heat of the moment. Over the next 25 years, I think a lot of regulatory scientists are going to look back and say, what evidence did you have and when did you have it? And I think it's going to be a very important question, so we want to pin this down. So if you've seen a study that you think is a very important study in this space, and I've seen another VisionNet study I'm going to cover in a future video, if you've seen such a study, send it to me. I'd love to review it. And I think uh, those are my thoughts. This is what you get on this channel. It's a mix of critical appraisal and uh, health policy commentary, and that's the space I inhabit. Um, that's that's what my research is. So if you like this video, you know what to do. Like, subscribe, comment, leave a message below. Until next time.